Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board. Five minutes after 5 p.m. here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 11th day of August. Here we are, pretty near halfway through the month of August, and... uh, you know, it seems as if summer's wrapping up sooner and sooner every year. When I was a kid back in the Stone Age, you didn't go back to school until the day after Labor Day. Now it seems like mid-August, the kids are back to school, summer wraps up, and all that comes to a conclusion. The folks back in Washington, D.C. go back to... Uh, Well, not doing much at all, I guess, if you're talking about Congress. And here in California, well, if they're going back to work in Sacramento, that means they're stirring up trouble. And certainly the California state legislature get a long list of trouble they're fixing to get into. Greg Burt is going to join us later on in tonight's program to talk about the dirty dozen, some dozen bills that are nearing final stage before a full vote And boy, there are some doozies that we're going to talk about tonight. We'll get to that conversation a little bit later on. Yeah, them coming back from vacation. Maybe better we just extend that through the end of September of, I don't know, 2055? That works for me. All right, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Also, we'll talk about some of the fallout in relationship to not just the resignation by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, but once again, the notion of the power play that takes place in circumstances where people in power, people in positions of authority are able to take advantage, be it, I don't know, they just feel as if they have a right to behave in a certain fashion or don't think twice about it. And uh, it's once again ignited the whole question of the Me Too movement. And uh, we thought we would bring into the conversation a leading addiction specialist, Dr. Greg Jantz, to give us some insights as to What is the motivating factor behind addictive sexual behavior, and why is it so often those that are involved in it rarely know it? You'll see what I mean when Dr. Jantz joins us later on in the program. Well, as you know, the 2020 Olympics are finally over. Uh, Well, the 2021 version of the 2020 Olympics, which, as we all know, never really happened, at least not on time. And uh, while we applaud, certainly, uh, many of the great, incredible athletes that uh, showed their athletic prowess before the world, um, it's it's raised some interesting questions. Uh, We talked last week about Simone uh, Biles, who talk about an incredible Athlete. I heard one commentator the other day say that she may go down in history as one of the most incredible athletes, not just of our time, but of U.S. history. 32, count them, 32 Olympic and world champion medals in gymnastics. And what a shame it was that there were a few that took umbrage with her dropping out of a few competitions. And, of course, immediately, oh, she's soft, she's a snowflake, she doesn't have stick to itiveness, all of this, and then later to have significant amounts of mud on their face, and deservedly so, to discover that big part of the motivation of her difficulty in competing had to do with the sudden death of her aunt while she was at the Olympics. Let's talk a bit about Tokyo 2021. Will Thompson joins us. He is with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. In fact, the uh, the Japan director and Will, thank you so much for being with us. This is an unusual set of circumstances, not only in that there was a delay, so many of the athletes that prepared for 
four years and we're ready to compete just to be told, no, wait, hold on, all of this is on hold because of COVID, but then dealing with the delayed games a year later under the shadow of COVID with no fans in the stands. And uh, there's got to be a a tremendous impact on the dynamic, on the psyche, particularly if you're an athlete that's used to performing in front of huge crowds and suddenly to be bet by nothing but silence. Will, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So what is your sense? What, how challenging is that? Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. Obviously, I'm not an Olympic athlete. I did play collegiately. I played baseball. But um, working with some of these athletes, um, that's that's who they are. That's our identity. And so, uh, especially for more focus, being uh, coaches and athletes and trying to share the gospel with them, um, even those that have faith, um, that's uh, incredibly challenging circumstances that we're uh we're in right now but all the more i would say for those without that uh that faith um to fall back on was this an a an unusual ministry challenge for fca this year of course many folks that are familiar with the ministry for well over my goodness 60 something years involved in the college and high school campuses with huddles um, all over the nation and certainly having a presence at big sporting events like the olympics every four years and and this year because of the delay and because of COVID and so forth i'm wondering what was the atmosphere like in terms of additional challenges to minister to many of the spiritual needs of the athletes that gathered from all over the world in Tokyo? Sure. I mean, it looked completely different just much as the last year and a half has looked uh, across the world, really. And, and what we've said from the beginning of the pandemic within FCA is that, you know, ministry is a canceled. Those uh, coaches and athletes are still out there and they still have the same needs. Um, and in fact, I think even more so. And so, um, it did look a lot different. You know, we've been planning and preparing and praying for the last eight years since we knew Tokyo was going to have the Olympics to uh, reach out to not only coaches and athletes, but also the the community, the fans in Japan, the fans from around the world. And, and so a lot of that outreach that we've been planning, mission teams, people coming in to do sports camps and clinics and events has really been either canceled or postponed. But what we what we saw was um, opportunities through virtual ministry, whether that be through sports chaplaincy, and uh, also uh, we had there's a really exciting uh, prayer initiative that's actually still going on now through the end of the Paralympics called Japan One Million, and uh, you can find out more about that at Japan the digit one million dot com, and it's to it to. Uh, mobilize one million hours of prayer for Japan, and Japan's a place that desperately needs it. Less than one percent uh, are believers there, second largest unreached people group in the world. Um, but we really still, even though it looks completely different, we still believe God uh, was and is up to something. He's going to use this uh, moment of Tokyo 2020 as a legacy uh, for ministry in Japan. Any amazing stories, and I realize some of this can be quite personal for the athletes, but any amazing stories in terms of things that came out of that uh, two-and-a-half-week period of time of ministry there that you can share? Well, so I mentioned the chaplaincy, and so uh, some of you all might be aware, you know, there's uh, every Olympics, there's a multi-phase center within the village, and so what that ended up having to look like this year because of uh, different uh, restrictions. It was all uh, virtual, but uh, and so 
chaplains, uh, so athletes were uh, able to reach out to chaplains and, and were able to connect virtually. And so the, even though it, that was a, a shame, of course, because there couldn't be that in-person interaction, there's still cool stories of how there would be a uh, some athlete from uh, one country that wanted someone to pray with and no one could enter the village so that a chaplain could connect them with another athlete who was a believer and, and different things like that. Um, also, I, I'm connected personally with a few uh, athletes uh, who, who medaled. Uh, one Indonesian badminton star who's a believer who got gold and, and another with bronze. And, then, and so that was really cool to see them and knowing their heart and their love for the Lord and even knowing some of what they've had to go through the last year and a half, um, not to mention, you know, the normal life and training of an Olympic athlete normally, and then you add pandemic onto it. So, um, so yeah, there are those stories. I think they'll probably come out more and more, and we're also excited about what, what's in store for the Paralympics here in a few weeks. I made reference in my opening remarks to um – Simone Biles and the challenges that she faced. She clearly is a pretty incredible athlete and and yet faced some huge challenges there, uh, unbeknownst to much of the world until well into the games that she had lost her aunt and just, you know, the emotional distraction that that, that, that creates. Um, what, what is your sense in terms of the kind of challenges that these athletes face, not just from the delay the COVID, the competitiveness um, uh, on the court, in the field, and so forth, but coupled with just having to deal with day-to-day aspects of life that many of many of us as spectators maybe just don't calculate or, or don't take the time to recognize, all of that really plays a role in the challenges that they face. Sure, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what we often talk about is, you know, we're created as three-dimensional beings, uh, being, you know, physical, mental, and, and spiritual and um, that applies to coaches and athletes as well. And, and what we found, in fact, is that, you know, when you're able to meet those spiritual needs, those mental needs, then you're freed up to better compete um, physically. And that, uh, that turns into, I mean, and it's not always, but it turns into a better performance because you're freed up for that. And, and so the flip side of that being, like we saw in Simone's case, and of course I don't know her, so I, I uh, don't want to speak too much into her specific situation, but I can definitely imagine, you know, the fact that there is a mental or a spiritual distraction or something that held her down. It did, as we saw, um, affected her physical ability to, to compete at her best, which everybody obviously knows she is more than capable of. So we really believe that, you know, this could be just another opportunity that, it sheds light on this issue, and of course, we hope that it'll point people to to Jesus because we know he's the only hope um, that we have. Another athlete, you know, that's been in the media recently with similar issues, Naomi Osaka, um, who's you know represents Japan, and 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 that's also shed a lot of light in Japanese society, uh, much like it has here in the American media with Simone Biles. And, you know, clearly one of the issues there at play, too, is that you're dealing with, in terms of some of the athletes there locally, cultural differences, and even many of the athletes coming from other countries that have different backgrounds. So in, in terms of the kind of boots-on-the-ground ministry work that FCA is involved with, uh, some unique challenges there. For sure, and it really looks different. FCA, it looks different. You know, we're in 100 
plus countries, and so each country looks completely different. And what works in that country, that culture, and um, it, it's just very different. And so in Japan, um, you know, it's less than half a percent believers, le- uh, second largest unreached people group in the world, and and uh, even more so unreached in the sports world because you have. Uh, sports uh, that's played in practice on Sunday and and the small but very faithful church. So there's there's very little overlap between the church and the sports world. So w- when we try to when we approach coaches and athletes, meet them where they are and meet them with these issues, like you had just uh, mentioned, um, we're 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 dealing with a lot of similar things because they are athletes. They find their identity in their sport and they give their all to it, just like anyone, any athlete from anywhere in the world, but you have a completely different set of cultural, uh, spiritual, religious, um, and even organizational dynamics at play. So we often, in, for example, sharing the gospel, we, would sh- we don't ever ask, oh, uh, what do you think of uh, being a Christian, Christianity, or stuff, using that B word, we, we say, well, who's the true creator God? Um, who is Jesus? You know, because the, in Japan there's millions of gods. Um, also, you know, the one creator God, we, we'll start at Genesis because there's so many gods, it, it, you have to really um, point your finger on who you're actually talking about um, because they, it just completely doesn't make sense to them at all. Yeah, and, and, and your your point is very valid. Will Thompson with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He's their Japan director, FCA, great organization, was involved many years myself. And uh, if you're an athlete involved in collegiate or high school sports and want to find out more about a huddle near you, we invite you to get more information online at fca.org. That's FCA for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. .org. Our thanks to Will Thompson. 518 on the clock. Here's an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, I mentioned about the fact that uh, many school districts across the state, school is back in. And next week, the California State Legislature will be back in. Um, yeah, kind of like school being back in, in terms of a group of Juveniles gather together that are in desperate need of direction, education, discipline. <laughs> now, if you conclude that's a none too complimentary description of the California State Legislature, you'd be absolutely right. And I say that because it's demonstrated by a number of significant bills that are under consideration as they go back to work. I'm using my air quotes here next Monday to talk about some of these unbelievably dangerous bills. Greg Burt joins us, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. And Greg, may I start by saying, as we are heading into a uh, an election here, in fact, a scant one month away with the recall of Gavin Newsom, uh, as I look at some of these bills that have been put forward for consideration by the Assembly and the Senate, I'd almost like to conclude that we missed the mark in that we're recalling one when we ought to look at recalling 121, meaning not just the governor, but everybody in the California state legislature, based on some of the ridiculous to dangerous things that they're wanting to foist upon California families. Absolutely. Uh, Appreciate you having me on. You know, uh, we've been watching these bills being introduced um, and the press largely ignoring many of them. But uh, the California Family Council is opposing 17 different bills that 
threaten the unborn, that threatens parental rights, freedom of speech and religion, and encourages racism, drug abuse, sex trafficking, and assisted suicide. Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of bad bills, and uh, we're trying to spread the word, get the word out, because um, people got to make some noise. You bet. Let's talk about some of the more egregious ones, and, and it's, it's a long laundry list, so folks, pay close attention. I want to begin with Assembly Bill 1184. You know, one of the things that we've always valued is the importance of parental rights, that parents have rights, along with responsibilities when it comes to raising their children. Here's a bill that attempts to strip parents of at least one of those, and that is the parental right to understand what's going on with a child and a child's health. AB 1184 requiring insurance companies to keep secret from parents, who, by the way, also pay the premiums, um, such sensitive procedures that include abortion, sexual assault treatment, drug abuse and mental health treatment, and even even treatment, quote-unquote, for gender dysphoria. This is a shocker. So if my child goes to the school nurse and wants an aspirin, he or she can't have it without parental permission. But if that same child wants to go have an abortion, not only is it fully legal, but the parent has no right to know that that's taken place. Am I misreading this? No, I mean, that's already currently law. Kids can already give consent. Uh Abortions at any age and all the other things you mentioned after the age of 12 under most conditions. But what this bill does is they've noticed that, um, uh, that insurance companies are spilling the beans and revealing to parents the kind of treatments their kids are getting when their insurance is being used. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get your insurance bill, uh, your children uh, are using it, but you're not going to be able to know who is making the charge and what the treatment is that you're being charged for. You're just going to have an amount on your bill, uh, and you'll have to be responsible for that amount. And, you know, I'm not sure about you, but I'm always calling my insurance company or my medical provider because I think they mischarged me or, you know, there's miscommunication, and I don't just simply pay a bill when somebody sends it to me. That's going to be almost impossible now. Uh, and guess who's sponsoring this bill? Planned Parenthood. Oh, big surprise there. So, so in other words, you're you're telling me that um, a- any of the charges that would not be covered, you know, deductible things of that sort, the bill shows up. You call your insurance carrier and say, "What's this all about?" And the insurance carrier says, "Well, sir, we can't tell you, but you have to pay it." What? That's it. Wow. These are going to be uh, uh, sensitive services that those on your uh, statement, your minors, uh, I might have three kids all on my insurance, um, and I won't be able to see anything that they're getting if they're considered a sensitive service. There, there's another issue that, that is almost kind of a, a companion when it comes to being ridiculous, and that is Senate Bill 245, uh, again on the topic of health insurance plans that it, that in this case are essentially, you know, when we think about insurance, it's shared liability, right? I mean, there's 10 houses on the block. We all buy fire insurance. Um, two houses catch on fire, but the premiums of the other eight help to make whole those who have lost their homes. So it's shared risk. Uh, so it essentially then in Senate Bill 245 is is shared murder. I mean, I, I know that's a little strong word to use here, um, uh, Greg, but, but at the end of the day, forcing insurance plans to pay for abortions 
and that gets covered by all of our premiums, seems like we're all being forced into that. Well, yeah, and, this, and our insurance currently is being forced. All of our insurance plans already currently are forced to cover abortion. But this particular bill is making sure that the abortions are covered for free, no co-pays <laughs> and no deductibles. Uh, so, I mean, how many other services uh, have to be provided to people for free? None. Why are we choosing abortions of all all services to be the one of uh, service you know that is going to be free for people? I mean, why would the government want us to to eliminate uh, our children? Right? It's like they want to make th- that is the easiest. I mean, what you end up paying for, you end up encouraging, right? And so won't this encourage more abortions? Well, absolutely. And why are we doing that as a society when California is uh, has a drop in the birth rate? We can't even replace ourselves now. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable and, and undoubtedly one of the biggest beneficiaries of that, once again, Planned Parenthood. Greg Burt is with us tonight, Director of Capital Engagement with the California Family Council. We've only just begun. Strap in, folks, because there's a lot more straight ahead after we get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council, the California State Legislature, back to work on Monday. And boy, what a dirty dozen bills that they are proposing. There's uh, several others that I want to get to here, uh, Greg. Uh, Another one just kind of hopping around here. Um, Senate Bill 519. Now... We're going to look at decriminalizing. I guess we're going to follow Oregon because we think it's such a great idea. We're going to decriminalize LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs. That includes magic mushrooms, peyote, who knows what else they're going to add to that list. If you're over 21, knock yourself out. And I guess we're just going to look the other way when it comes to the the health risks, uh, the impact on society, uh, the, the, the potential increase in hospitalizations from drug overdoses, all of this, because what? We've decided if we can't beat them, join them? I don't know what the thinking is here, especially, I don't know if you remember last year where uh, flavored tobacco was a big deal and the legislature was very concerned about all the, the health effects it would have on young people, right? And so, But this year they're thinking about legalizing LSD, which is outlawed because of the terrible health effects it has on people, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows this, that LSD is bad for you. Right, and it's like uh, if you listen to the hearing, they always uh, are start bringing up the you know that uh, veterans and other folks with mental illness are now using LSD to treat depression, and you know it's. And I'm thinking, okay, well if that's true, well why don't we go through uh, legalizing it the way we do other drugs that are proven to help people with mental illness? Well, the right? other issue here, too, that I think is should be of grave concern to every Californian, and that is, you know, we have a difficult enough time controlling people who drink and get behind the wheel or who now smoke marijuana and get behind the wheel. So now we're going to add to the list, uh, I'm sorry, officer, it appears as if you have eight heads because I'm on a bad LSD trip and I shouldn't have gotten into the car. I mean, how do you control things like that? How do you test for things like that? And like you point out, if 
the impact of vaping is something of a major health concern for young people, but doing peyote or doing LSD is not? I mean, I guess Timothy O'Leary must be happy, but aside from that, what? No, exactly. I, I don't get the thinking. Um, I, I just think that uh, there's a constituency in Senator Wiener District in, in San Francisco that really wants LSD to be legalized, and he's pushing their agenda. Um, and uh, he'll use any arguments uh, he can to make it happen. You mentioned um, my f- least favorite senator, who, in addition to that notion, perhaps, also seems to think as we've talked for years about trying to protect women from the, 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 the horrors of sex trafficking and sex enslavement and all that attends to prostitution, um, that Senator Weiner has introduced Senate Bill 357 that legalizes loitering for prostitution, one of the few tools that law enforcement has at its disposable that can oftentimes not only stop it, but give a, a woman an opportunity to to be able to get rescued because it it will separate her from a time being from uh, the 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 sex trafficker or the John that has uh, the 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 um, the pimp rather that has that has pulled her into this life, and now this gets rid of the police's ability to deal with prostitution out in the open in neighborhood streets. I bet folks that live in the Tenderloin District really must love this measure. Yeah, you would think this is a, the traffickers are going to love this. This is going to be great for business, right? It's going to be easier to sell poor women on the street. And this is really going to affect not your high-end type of a person involved in prostitution. This is the this is the poorest of the poor who are doing the most dangerous type of prostitution there is. Because you're out there, you're completely vulnerable, you're getting into a car, you don't know where they're taking you. Women are more vulnerable in that situation than any other situation, right? And now police cannot, cannot approach. Because when you are, have that happening on the street, police need probable cause. They need a reason to approach someone and try and uh, stop this thing that's happening right out in the open. And if they don't have uh, this law outlawing loitering for prostitution, they have to actually be able to hear the solicitation happening or they don't have any evidence it is happening. And you can imagine it's going to be pretty hard for police to hear a solicitation happening because as soon as they get close, <laughs> yeah. Conversation stop. What right? are you going to do? Walk up and say, "Excuse me, can you identify yourself and exactly what you're up to here?" I mean, it, it just exactly. You know, we 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 have enough when it comes to policing this and protecting women, particularly with such a significant spike in human trafficking taking place globally. And yet, what do we do? One of the few tools that law enforcement has at its disposable at its disposal. Senator Weiner thinks, nah, we don't need that anymore. I mean, it, it, it just, it, you know, it, if we're going to impeach the governor, this guy ought to be impeached right along with it. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Another one that I want to have you speak to, Greg, that I find particularly frightening, there has been this battle in California that's gone on for the better part of 25-something years now over so-called assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide, and every time that they push this stuff, um, there's always been, hey, don't worry, there's going to be all these safeguards built in to make sure that nobody makes a bad decision under emotional duress or that somebody doesn't come along and coerce grandma who's got, you know, 
couple of million bucks sitting in the bank to, uh, you know, you're not looking too well these days, Grandma. Let me, let me help you uh, kind of end your pain. And so when, when physician-assisted suicide came into the state, there were so-called guardrails built in, and now Senate Bill 380 proposed to remove them all. Tell us what's up with this. Well, yeah, it was only 2015 when California passed uh, an assisted suicide law um, under the guise that, you know, uh, that certain people wanted this, uh, these drugs at the end of life, and how could we d- deny them those drugs? Um, and But there was all these concerns about, you know, uh, people feeling pressured, you know, or spending their family's money at the end of their life and, you know, People are going to be feel pressured into taking these drugs, or what if they're depressed, right? And they, they simply have a, a momentary uh, bout of depression, and they want to commit suicide. Shouldn't we be helping these people <laughs> instead of offering them pills? Um, and so they put in safeguards. There was a 15-day waiting period between uh, the two requests. So if you wanted these suicide drugs, you had to wait 15 days after you first asked for them. Um, before you got uh, you got them, so the, the waiting period, and then they also they had a sunset date uh, on the bill for it was supposed to expire in 2025, and then they were supposed to look at the data and just see who's doing this, uh, what the effects are, making sure that uh, you know people were not being abused. So they want that sunset date to go away, and they want that waiting period to be reduced to two days or 48 hours. Wow, and you know, uh, and the the and this is how it always works with euthanasia bills. At first, they limit it to a very small number of people that can have them, and then over the years, the the people cry, "Hey, I want the drugs too. You kept me from getting them." And so, how once you let it allow the drugs for one group of people, how can you not allow it for another group of people? And you know what's so bad about this is that you 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 can maybe make the argument with which I would totally disagree, but you can maybe make the argument that somebody that goes into a deep depression, contemplative of suicide, uh, that maybe over the course of fifteen days they can get help, they can seek advice, friends can come along and 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 shed some uh, some clarity and see a reversal of that decision. A 48-hour window, Greg, I get my annual property tax bill. I go into a depression for 48 hours. So, I mean, it just seems as if the totality of any of the significant guardrails, if any were there really and truly from the beginning, are now entirely being removed. I mean, it's almost as if this state wants to celebrate death at all at all levels. Well, and you know, once they uh, – if, if this bill passes, the, the – the next thing that's going to go is they'll eliminate the waiting period altogether, right? And it won't be just people who are terminally ill. It'll be people, people who are handicapped or, you know, don't, you know, have had a severe disease or a long-term uh, illness or they're just depressed. In, in Europe now, if you have, if you're just diagnosed with depression, you can get the suicide pill. Wow. Somebody like uh, Margaret Sanger from the grave uh, must be completely celebrating this because if there's any uh, demonstration of the science of eugenics, this is certainly it. Uh, More information available on these Dirty Dozen. 
bills that um, can cause significant harm to the state of California and its families. Information available at CaliforniaFamily.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. You'll bet we'll be talking about more of these bills in the coming days. I mean, it's just, wow. It's like every bad idea that they ever cooked up in Sacramento all mixed into one pot, all in one legislative session. Whoopee. And they say the inmates are not running the asylum. Yeah, bet me. Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement for California Family Council. Greg, as always, we appreciate the update. Unfortunate that we had to discuss such disappointing matters. What a black eye on the state of California. 545 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You might have been passing heard the news. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigning following a bombshell sexual harassment report released by the AG in New York. Following a five-month investigation, the governor is going to step down effective the 24th of August, raising once again significant questions, pardon me, related to uh, the issue of not only how women are treated in our country, but but also the way in which sexual addiction can get a hold of an individual in such a significant way or modify their behavior in fashions that they don't even feel as if is untoward or inappropriate, uh, largely because of their emotional state of mind. And talk about this good guest, Dr. Greg Jantz, best-selling author, one of the uh, leading experts in the nation on addiction. He's the best-selling author, as I mentioned, of more than 26 books on topics that range from depression to eating disorders to addiction. And he is the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources called A Place of Hope. And Dr. Jantz, always great to have you on the program. Well, good to be with you, always. Boy, we've been watching not only the uh, the news out of New York, but even the governor's response to all of this in a 15-minute-long quasi, I hesitate to call it mea culpa because it almost sounds like it's not his fault for anything. And it, it strikes me that in many cases, whether we're talking about more extreme examples of, of, of Harvey Weinstein or, or um, uh, even the situation with Bill Cosby, where there seems to be a tremendous sense of, of denial of those perpetrators. And I wonder how much of this is just a continuation of some of these inappropriate historical social norms that just haven't caught up with, with uh, treating people uh, appropriately, uh, along with maybe signs of addictive behavior where the person who's involved or, or pulled into that addiction, maybe Dr. Jantz, much like alcoholism, doesn't, at least for a very long season, even recognize they themselves have a problem. Well, and this is the whole key to this, is um, we look at the position of authority and power, and then uh, that influence. And this is nothing new, though we were, we're seeing it played out again uh, with, uh, in New York. But what we know is denial uh, is very strong for every addiction. And so we need to look at this through the lens, the lens of an addiction, and we know that the power and control, also there's a part of that that can be somewhat delusional in that you begin to believe your own lies. 
So in an effort to try and explain yourself, you put forward an argument, and I suppose the more you spend time contemplating this or taking that position, the more you, you buy into it yourself. No, no, you misunderstand, as, as the governor tried to suggest, that, uh, you know, this was a misunderstandings, this was, a, you know, maybe a disconnection between the way one culture behaves versus another. I'm Italian, so I get the hugging and kissing and, and being friendly that way, but there are limits, there are barriers, and, and I suppose when you're in a position of authority like a governor, you have to be especially careful because there's increased vulnerability there, and you've got so many people around you all the time, and and yet there seems to be a very strong degree of denial going on. Now, we, you know, there's always two sides to every story, so we don't want to entirely judge until the facts on both sides are completely out, but it, but it raises the broader question of the nature of this behavior overall in society today, and, and in the wake of so many things going public um, following the Me Too sort of uh, spike in, in, in public discussion of such matters, maybe high time that we as, a, as American culture needs to rethink not only the, ra- the way that we relate to each other, but most importantly, the way we teach each other, uh, the way we treat each other. Yes, and we are seeing too much where it really is a sexualized relationship, and there's a misuse of, of power and authority and control. And a lot of things have been, well, if you will, excused or minimized, or uh, we may make an excuse, oh, that's just the way so-and-so is. Um, But what we know is uh, this is progressive over time, like any other addiction. Uh, If we're talking about uh, sexualizing relationships, sexual addiction, over time we begin to cross more and more lines and the risk grows greater and greater. And I believe that we can see that here in in this situation we're talking about, about the New York governor. Um, Over time, lines begin to be crossed. In your opinion, Doctor, is any of this, the the flames of this behavior stoked by our society today in, in the broader sense? And I ask that question in relationship to things like um, the media, entertainment, advertising, all of which seems to run with very deep-seated uh, sexualization in every message, whether you're trying to sell a car or entertain somebody in a movie. Uh, it, it seems to be wrought with all of this. I wonder how much tends to subliminally sort of um, coax us into the notion that this is acceptable behavior. Isn't that interesting? It- and, and we begin to accept things that are unacceptable. And uh, that's, that's a danger. The denial and the justification for our behavior. And we certainly see that. Anytime, and a person can just keep going in denial, uh, justify the behavior, minimize the behavior. What we're talking about is addiction. And, you know, so often it, it takes some kind of a major event to bring the degree of addiction to the forefront. Now, maybe for the alcoholic, it's a, a DUI. Um, in a case like this, and there's always people around, if it be a coworker who's on the receiving end of the abuse, or maybe a spouse that says, you know, there, there's, there's maybe be some involvement that my husband has with, you know, pornography that seems to be over the top and unhealthy, things of this sort. How do we help the addicted person begin to recognize where they're at and find help themselves and and speak to if you would doctor to the person who's right there right now and maybe even eavesdropping on this conversation and says you know 
I, I recognize maybe that I've got some boundaries that I've not really kept a, a, a close eye on, and as a result, maybe I've got some issues I've got to deal with, too. Yeah, and it is like a ticking time bomb because over time things do progress and something will happen eventually. It does every time. And so we go, okay, well, I need to have an awareness and tell myself the truth. Yes, I need to admit, but that's difficult. Sometimes that doesn't come until a person has lost everything, until they've lost relationships, jobs, etc. So an addiction will put your life at risk to lose the very things that you really do ultimately love. For somebody who's struggling to find answers or not sure where to start to kind of dig out of this, I mean, I, I suppose the alcoholic probably generally is familiar with organizations like AA, or you can maybe go and find a recovery group, uh, something like a Celebrate Recovery at a local church, but something like this that is so charged with with not only controversy, but such a tremendous degree of guilt and shame. I mean, you just don't casually sit down across the table with a golfing buddy and say, well, you know, kind of going through a tough time here. I think I have a sexual addiction. No. Hey, I hit the bottle a little bit too much. Maybe people feel comfortable to a lesser or to a greater degree revealing something like, like that. But this has got such a taboo to it. Where do people go to find help? And that's the key. Uh, where do people go to get help? Help is available something that we see and work with every day but again help means i'm willing to be accountable help means for most i have to radically change my life and be willing to do so and so you know at times we need to go okay today's the day i decide i'm going to change the course of my life and um, you don't have to wait till you lose everything. You don't have to wait till you're in crisis. This could be the opportunity to pick up the phone, phone and just say, okay, I'm going to find out what are my options. Guilt and shame will try to hold you back. It's like, I'm so embarrassed, I can't even talk about this. So that shame and guilt is part of what will keep you in hiding. And remember, what's in hiding and what we do in secret is that eventual ticking time bomb. Something will go off. Indeed so. Dr. Greg Jantz, who is an expert in the arena of a variety of issues related to addiction, um, with us today. Information available on the web at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. And we encourage you to uh, take that first step, if this is something that you're struggling with, um, to address it before it completely blows up on you. Because as Dr. Greg Jantz mentions, oftentimes um, people don't really find the help that they need until everything is taken from them. Dr. Greg Jantz, thanks so much for the time. Information again on the web at aplaceofhope.com. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX San Francisco. That means it's time for a look at uh, some news headlines. But before we do that, let's get a look at some traffic headlines. This report is paid for by HHS's Health Resources and Services.